Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Robbinsville. Thank you for joining us. We trust that the teaching of God's Word will speak to you. All right, well, church family, I'm excited to get to worship with you today. Uh, I've brought some helpers up here with me to start out this morning. And I told them if they came up here, I would give them a little treat, all right? So I'm going to start out keeping my word. I'm going to give them the treat that I told them. So there's one for you. There's one for you. There's one for you. And here's some for you. And some more for you. And some for you. What do you mean that's not fair? What's wrong with that? You don't think that's fair? No. Oh, man. All right. Thank you. Good job. Isn't it funny that we don't have to teach people to fight for fairness? Right? Did you ever have that conversation with a child where you sit down and be like, all right, this is what it means to be fair, and I want you to go out and live life expecting to receive fairness? We don't have to teach anybody that, do we? But if I had to guess, you've probably heard somebody in your life say that very phrase at some point. That's just not fair. Because all of us inside, we have this understanding and this feeling that life should be fair. I should be treated equally to others and others should take care of me. And, you know, sadly, we quickly realize life is not fair. People in our life do not treat us fairly. People are not going to treat us equally to others. But maybe we kind of understand why, because they're flawed and sinful people as well, right? And so we kind of dismiss that. We say, okay, well, they're, they're sinful people. We understand why they would fail to treat us fairly. Only if there was someone who was good all the time. If there was someone who was loving and fair all the time, then we finally could be treated fairly in life, especially if that someone had the ability to actually control the circumstances in my life that I face. Wouldn't that be great if such an individual existed? We say, well, that individual does exist, right? That's description of our Lord and Savior. Our God is a God who's sovereign. He is all-powerful, he's all-wise, he's all-knowing, and he, is, he can control and bring about the things just as he sees fit. And he's also good, and he's just, and he's perfect, and he always does what is right. Now, when we put that together, we, we kind of could come to this conclusion that maybe people won't treat me fairly, but certainly God will always treat me fairly, won't he? Certainly, the life that God oversees and orchestrates and brings about would be a life that's going to be fair, won't it? And if you really wrestle with that, it finds ourselves asking these sort of questions. We start to think that God should always give me exactly what I deserve. And if you think about what that means, that means that if I'm living an honorable, God-fearing life, maybe deep within me, there's this thought that says God does owe me something. You ever felt that way? Maybe, maybe you don't verbalize that out like that, but maybe you have this little inner feeling that says, God, I've, I've really lived honorably for you. I've, I've sacrificed for you. I'm trying to live as you would have me to live. Certainly you're gonna do your part and give me the life that is pleasing, right? Or maybe if you see somebody else not living that way and you're trying to strive to live for the Lord, but you see someone else living in sin and rebellion against God, what do you feel like God should give them? What do you feel like they are due? What do you feel like would be fair for that individual to receive? If we search our hearts, I think all of us can find these subtle ways where we carry that kind of an expectation towards God. That God, if I do my part, certainly you will do what is fair and give me back what I deserve. 
Now, this is really one of the questions as we get ready to look at the book of Job. This is one of the primary questions that Job is answering. Job is a book all about suffering, but, and yes, he teaches us a lot about how to suffer well, but more than that, Job also asks this question, should we expect life to be fair? And really, here's the kind of second part of that question. If we don't find life to be fair, and God is the one who's orchestrating our lives, is he still worth serving? And that's the question that all of us need to wrestle with. Because the way we answer that question is going to drastically change the way we face trials and suffering in our life. Because if we aren't confident that God is still worth serving, even if we're not receiving what we think is fair, we are going to face trials and sufferings and we are going to be destroyed in our relationship with the Lord. And so Job is going to teach us today as we study this this text, is life fair? Is it right for me to expect that in my experience of life? And if not, is God still worth serving? So let me pray, and then we're going to begin in in Job chapter 2. Father, I thank you that you have chosen to give us another day. I thank you, as Jeremy said, that we have the opportunity right now to meet with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, Father, we get that privilege every minute of our day if we want it. But God, right here in this moment, we are collectively bringing our worship together to you. And Father, we know that you long to speak to us, even though this word was written thousands of years ago, it's still real, it's still alive, and it's still powerful and meaningful for our world today. So Father, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help us to search our hearts today, to see if there's expectations we have of you that we're living out. Things in our life that we feel like you are not doing right, help us, Lord, to see those things, reveal those to us, help us to know how to proceed. And secondly, Father, I pray, I know as I think about this congregation full of people, this room full of people, there are individuals facing different suffering and trials right here and right now. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them today. I pray that you would comfort them. And I pray, God, that you would help us to have some path forward for how do we deal with life when it's hard and seemingly unfair. So, Father, please speak to us today, and above all, may may you be honored and glorified, and may you make your word real and understandable in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to start out, this is our second week in this series, and we're going to start out in Job chapter 2, verse 11. But in case you weren't here last week, I want us just to remember the background of Job. Chapter 1 describes Job as a man who is upright and blameless, one who feared God and shunned evil. Now, when we think about that, we we say, what kind of life should Job expect? What would be fair for somebody, what kind of a life would be fair for somebody who's living in that way? We would think that'd be a life of prosperity and a life of blessing. And yet, as we walk through chapter one and beginning of chapter two last week, we see this heartbreak that Job was facing, this suffering that Job experienced that is almost unimaginable for us to even consider, the death of 10 children the loss of his crops and his future, abandonment from his wife and physical affliction and pain. Those two things don't line up in our minds that expect fairness. But that's where Job finds himself. And so we ended last week. Job was outside and he was sitting on this pile of ashes. He was mourning. He was completely alone. He was isolated. And he was just so full of grief at the suffering that he was experiencing in his life. And as he's all alone, we come to chapter 2, verse 11, and we see some friends who are going to try to come to Job's aid. 
Now, when, these, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and they did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and they wept, and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And so they sat down with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. And they saw that his grief was very great. Well, if you're familiar with the book of Job, oftentimes his friends get a really bad rap. And we're going to see in a minute why that is. But before we get into that, let's just stop for a minute and think about these friends. Because where they start, they really do some things very well. Because if you put yourself in this place, if you had a friend who was experiencing some of the suffering that Job had, how many of you would feel so confident to go to that person and to be with him? Not many of us. That's a scary thing to do because you would just feel so inadequate in that moment. You would feel so afraid of saying or doing the wrong thing. And you just feel like, I have nothing to offer somebody who's going through that type of thing in life. And so we look at these friends and we see they do some things well. The first thing is they came to him. We realized these weren't just next-door neighbors. They had, to make, they had to make this a priority. They intentionally talked together and said, we are going to go together and we are going to go to Job because we know that he's suffering. So they laid aside their own, their own busyness and they came to the one who was hurting. And as they're coming to him and they see him from afar off and they recognize his grief and misery is so great that they couldn't even recognize him. Grief had physically changed him, and the the sores that he was experiencing was changing him, and so they didn't even recognize him when they saw him. But when they saw him, what did they do? They wept. They tore their robes, and they sprinkled dust on their heads. It's It's this attitude of grieving with him. Like we're called to do, we weep with those who weep. So these friends really did this right. Their attitude towards Job was right. They had this heart of concern for him and they longed to offer him some comfort, some way of helping eliminate and alleviate the pain that he was experiencing. And so they come to him and they enter into his suffering. And then they do this really weird thing. And so then they sat down and for seven days and seven nights, no one spoke a word. This is a really instructive thing for us because sometimes when we are, we, we, we are encountering people who are suffering, we go in and say, I don't know the right thing to say. The best thing that Job's friends did was actually right here in this moment before they started to speak. They were with him, they were present, and they just sat with him. If you've been through suffering in your life, sometimes the greatest thing you need is just to feel like I am not alone. Because at this point, Job felt so isolated his people that he loved were gone, and God, and God he, felt, he felt like was just distant from him probably even at this point. His wife had turned from him, so he felt so alone. And so here are these friends who are there, and they're present. But then they start to speak. And we want to be gracious with them because we remember this is their attitude when it started. They were trying to sincerely help their friend. Well, as Rant said, we're going we're gonna to look at chapters 2 through chapter 31 today. Because really all of that section is these speeches by these friends. The friends will speak and Job responds. Another friend speaks and Job responds. And on and on this goes for the next 29 chapters. Now, we're not going to look at all of these today, even though I did find this, which is kind of funny this week. Pastors, don't forget, you get to preach an extra hour today, right? But I'm not going to do that to you today. 
All right? And so what we're going to do in order to kind of move through these 29 chapters, we're obviously not going to get to cover every point of these 29 chapters. But what I do want us to do is kind of have this overview understanding of how did these friends see this situation? Because what was very clear about these friends is they thought they knew exactly what was happening. They thought they knew exactly what God was doing. They thought they knew exactly why God was doing it. And as they came to Job, they were extremely confident on we know what's happening and we can fix this situation. And so how did they think? And that's what we're going to walk through. How did they think? So we're just going to move through these quickly and kind of look at some snapshots from each friend. So the first one we'll see is Eliphaz. He was the first one to speak. We're going to come back to Job in a minute. But Eliphaz was the first friend to speak in chapter 4, and this is what he says. Remember now, he's talking to Job, whoever perished being innocent, or where were were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And so Eliphaz here is asking Job this question. Job, can you tell me a time when an innocent person ever died? Can you tell me a time when there was somebody who was living uprightly, who was ever cut off before his time? And he's asking this kind of rhetorically, expecting Job to say, of course not. Because in Eliphaz's understanding, this never happens. According to Eliphaz, innocent people don't perish. Innocent people don't suffer. And that's what he gets to at the end. Even as I have seen, speaking from his own experiences, Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. What's he saying? Job, those who who, who put wickedness into the world, that's what they're going to experience. Those who live wickedly, they're going to experience suffering and heartache because that's how God operates. That's always what God does. And so by default, what is he saying to Job? Well, chapter 22, he tells us, Job, is not your wickedness great? And your iniquity without end? Do you see how clear this was in Eliphaz's mind? Job, it is so obvious what is happening right here. God never causes innocent people to suffer. And yet you're going through some of the greatest suffering of anybody we have ever seen and experienced. Therefore, your wickedness must be great. The iniquity within you must be without end. Because God would certainly never bring this type of suffering on somebody who is living uprightly and justly. So put yourself in Job's position for just a minute. Job, this man going through unimaginable grief, feeling so isolated and alone, and now this is what his friends are telling him. Job, everything you're experiencing is your own fault. Everything you are going through is exactly what you deserved. If Job felt isolated before, he feels a deeper level of isolation right now. And this is so hard because these friends thought they were acting out of love and they thought they were bringing him comfort and trying to help him. And yet what they're doing is actually causing more hurt and more heartache and more confusion. Because these friends were so sure they knew exactly what was happening, but they were wrong. And how do we know they were wrong? Because in chapter 1, verse 1, God affirms Job was an upright man. In chapter 2, God affirms Job went through this and he did not sin. But that's not the worldview that these friends had. Well, Eliphaz wasn't alone. Here's what Bildad had to say, and this honestly may be even worse. 
In chapter 8, he says, Job, if your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgressions. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, Job, your kids got exactly what they deserved. Your 10 children who died when they were feasting together got exactly what they deserved. The sin against them must have been great. Do you see that? God cast them away for their transgression. God, the wickedness of Job, the wickedness of your kids must have been awful. Can you imagine saying that to a parent who's grieving the loss of 10 children? Your kids got exactly what they deserved. God acted justly and fairly because they got what they deserved. And so now Bildad tries to offer Job a path forward. Job, the problem is obvious. This is all your fault. How do we move forward? Verse 6, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and he would prosper your rightful dwelling place. So here's Bildad's conclusion. Job, it's so obvious what is going on. It's so clear why you're suffering the way that you are. If you would just live a pure and upright life, God would wake up and he would come to you and he would set you, he would bless you. Do you see the clear way of thinking here? You're getting exactly what you deserve. If you start to behave yourself, God will wake up and he'll change everything and he'll fix it and he'll pour on you blessing once again. Because this was such a black and white issue in their mind. So Job, just repent, make this right. But the problem again in Job's mind is what? I don't have anything to repent of. I'm innocent. I'm not perfect, but my sins have been paid for and there's not something in my life like you're arguing. You're wrong. And yet they continue over and over to make this argument. And finally, we get to Zophar, the third friend in chapter 11. And he's the most, he's the most cutthroat, just clear to the point guy. This is what he says. For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Now, in case you didn't catch that, this was like a 5,000 years ago. This was a major slam. Zophar is saying, Job, this is so obvious what is happening. And we are trying to help you. We are clearly telling you exactly what God is doing and why he's doing it. And you're continuing to argue with us and say that we're wrong. You are just so foolish, you will never get it. There's a greater chance that a wild donkey is going to give birth to a human before you will actually understand what's happening. Job, you are such a fool. So do you see in their mind how obvious this was? God is fair. This was their big conclusion. God must be fair. So Job's suffering was the result of his sin. That's the conclusion of the friends. God must be fair. God will always give you exactly what you deserve immediately because that's how God operates. And so when I look at your life, I know exactly what's happening because you are receiving what you deserve. Well, the fancy term for this is called the retribution principle. The word for retribution means it's like receiving payment for something that you're due. And so if we summarize the worldview of the friends, they lived out the retribution principle. This is what they believed. If you are righteous, 
There's like an equal sign here. If you are righteous, automatically, every time, immediately, what you will experience is blessing. In the same way, if you are wicked, automatically, every time, immediately, what you will experience is suffering. And they were so sure of this that they could say, we could also flip this and go the other direction. If you are experiencing blessing in your life, that can only mean you are a righteous person. And if you are experiencing suffering in your life, that can only mean every time that you are a wicked person. This was so clear in their mind. This is a black and white issue. And now this seems maybe, I don't know how you feel when you read that, maybe you kind of resonate with that, or maybe you feel like that's foolish, but the reality is, this is how most of the world has viewed and understood God since the creation. Remember, Job was one of the earliest books written, and this is how people thought. And honestly, when you look at Job's responses, he really held to this same idea originally. If I live a righteous life, God will bless me. But they weren't alone. A couple thousand years later, I was reading in the book of Acts this week, and there's this, this story of what happens that's so clear on this. It's really fun to see. If you remember towards the end of the book of Acts, uh, Paul, and his, his, he was on this ship. He was a prisoner, and their ship sank. Well, they managed to escape the shipwreck, and they get to land. And Paul's there, and he's building a fire with all these natives. And so he reaches down and grabs some firewood. And when he grabs it, what happens? A snake, viper, grabs onto his hand. And look at how the people of that island responded. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man was a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. However... They were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a God. Do you see what's at play here? It's this. It's the retribution principle. Paul, you just experienced suffering. And it's a bad one. You're going to die. You experienced suffering, therefore you must be a murderer. They had no idea who Paul was. But in their mind, it's so clear. This is how the world works. Fairness and justice happens immediately, every time, in the same way. And so suffering means wickedness. But what happened? He didn't die. Well, that could only mean one thing. You actually, you received great blessing. You survived sure death. Certainly that must mean you're not only righteous, you must be like a god. Do you see how clearly this is played out in their mind? Thousands of years later, do you think this idea still is played out today in our world? So I want us to stop and think for a minute. What makes this so hard is that this principle is partly true. We've studied wisdom for the last long while, and we've looked through Proverbs, we've looked through Ecclesiastes, and we've seen these principles that the righteous generally experience blessing. And the wicked generally experience suffering. And then we know there's other passages of Scripture like Galatians 6-7, which says, don't be mocked. God is, not, God is not mocked. You will receive exactly what you put into life. And so we come to the retribution principle, and we're like, well, it kind of makes sense because it does say you reap what you sow, and the righteous generally receive blessing. But here's the important thing we got to understand. This does not mean this happens immediately 
in the way that we would understand and think makes sense. Are you with me on that? There is coming a day when God will set all things right. When the righteous will experience eternal blessing and the wicked will experience eternal suffering. But that does not mean this plays out immediately in our lives today. And when we confuse that, we are in for a big problem. So I want us to think about how does this look fleshed out in our lives today? Because again, I'm not sure where you're at. Maybe you feel like, I actually believe that. Or maybe you feel like that's really dumb. And so I want us to think, search our hearts, could this be true? So if we live out this, and this is, this is in our minds, what kind of things do we see in the way we treat others? Well, we're very quick to judge. And we're very quick to dismiss. Have you ever seen that? Maybe you've seen somebody who's, who you would define as wicked and you are really quick to just cut that person off and say they're getting what they deserve. And maybe it causes us to become very arrogant because maybe we look at our life and say, you know what, I, I've got quite a bit of blessing in my life. You know, I think I probably maybe did deserve that. I think God knew what he was doing when he gave me these blessings because I've, I've lived a pretty good life. And so how does that cause us to view others? We judge others, we, we dismiss others, and ultimately we can be in the same spot as Job's friends where we are so confident we know what's happening that we actually hurt people in the process. Sadly, this happens all over the world in the name of God. A lot of pastors communicate this principle right here. If you get your act together, God would start treating you kindly and you could experience all the blessing of life. It's the prosperity gospel and it's a false gospel. And it leads people so confused and so hurt. Because more importantly than how this causes us to relate to others, let's think about how it causes us to relate to God. And I can tell you very clearly in my own life how I saw this played out in my life. And I've shared this story with you all before, but when Jess and I got married, we really longed to start a family. And so after being married for a little while, we, we thought it was time and we're gonna, we're gonna have this family and it's gonna be this great thing. We had this perfect idea in our mind of a house full of kids and we tried for five years to start a family and we struggled with infertility and God continued just to shut that door. Month after month, we were discouraged, upset, and angry. And so after a few years, we decided to go see what the doctors had to say. Well, in that process, we found out the reason we struggled with infertility was a physical issue on my end. When we were in that meeting and found that out, if the doctors had said it was a problem with Jess, I honestly think I could have responded with a lot of grace. I think I would have looked at her and said, you know, God, God, Jess, we can still trust God in this. God has a plan for our life. He's still good. But when I heard the doctor say that the problem was on my end, you know, my first thought, God, how dare you? I am sacrificing for you. I'm living my life for you. I'm trying to honor you with the way that I live. And this is how you treat me. I want to try to be a God-honoring father. I want to try to raise warriors for you. And this is how you treat me, your servant. And I would love to say that I left the doctor's office and had ridded, ridded my mind of that awful way of thinking, but that stuck with me for a while. I continued to be angry at the Lord and I continued to go grow bitter towards him. And the wild part of our story is that, and this is almost like, I don't even know if I should tell this part of the story, because as soon as I finally gave this away and said, God, you're still worth it 
after months of wrestling, God, if you choose to never give us a child, I am going to do all I can to still pursue you. God had every right in that moment to say, thank you for your heart. I'm not changing what I've chosen. But God, in some unexplainable way, chose to give us four kids when the doctor said we never would have it. And now I tell you that cautiously because it's not the retribution principle. It's not God's toying with me saying, finally got his heart, now I'm going to open the floodgates and give him four kids. He chose to do that, but he still would have been just as good and just as just if he didn't ever change what I experienced for those first five years. I don't know why he chose to open the floodgates, but he did. But he doesn't always work that way. And that doesn't change his goodness if he does or doesn't. And so I want us to think, and you see, how, you see how this played out in my life, and maybe you've heard yourself asking that question, God, how dare you? God, why are you doing this to me? This isn't fair. I don't understand. And this leaves us with this tidal wave of doubt and uncertainty because every day it's God's blessing me. He loves me. God's, I'm suffering. God doesn't love me. And we never know where we stand with the Lord. It's a very hard thing. And now we come to Job's responses. And we start out in chapter three, and unlike the friends, Job goes up and down and up and down and around the barn and back and forth. But I want to just kind of track how he grows. And he starts out in chapter three. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. After what? After he just stood these trials so well and said, I'm still going to pursue the Lord. And Job spoke and said, may the day perish on which I was born. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth and why did I not perish when I came from the room? Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures? I want us to just slow down here and feel the weight of this dark despair that Job was experiencing. He had just communicated such faith, but this is the next part of his journey, this, this deep anguish of soul where he's really saying, God, I wish, I wish I never would have been born. I wish if I had been born that I would have died, and I wish now you would give me the death that I long for. And I want you all to hear me and to hear the Lord that God affirmed Job as a man of faith at the beginning of book, the book, and he affirmed Job as a man of faith at the end of the book. And yet here in this moment, Job finds himself wrestling in the deepest darkness that any of us could ever experience. I need, to hear you, I need you to hear me say that even as believers who are trying to walk by faith, this can be our reality at moments. This may be what we feel at times in our life when we don't understand what God is doing. But what is important is what do we do with those feelings? And I want to recommend a book to you. It's called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. And this is from a pastor who went through a lot of heartache in his life. And this book teaches us the practice of lament, which is the practice of coming to God and sharing these deep darknesses and despair and saying, God, I don't know what to do but I still trust you and I'm still pursuing you. This is actually super cool timing this week because I just saw, I got an email this week that the publisher is giving this book away for free if you want it. So if you feel like you're there and maybe you're suffering and you don't even know how to put words to what you're experiencing, or maybe you know somebody else who's suffering and you don't know how to help them, 
If you message me this week, my number's in the bulletin, message me, I can send you this link and you can get the free ebook and read it. It's a wonderful resource because the, the likelihood is all of us are gonna go through this experience at some point in life. And so Job starts out in this very dark place of despair, but then he moves on in chapter nine. And now he comes to this place really of confusion. He says, I'm blameless, yet I do not know myself. I despise my life. It is all one thing, and therefore I say he destroys the blameless and the wicked. So this is a point of confusion because, remember, Job kind of thinks the retribution principle is true, and so he's saying the problem with it is, is I know I'm innocent. I know what I deserve and what I should expect, but I'm not getting it. And therefore, he comes to this conclusion at the end, God destroys the blameless and the wicked. And so what is Job doing here at this moment of confusion? He's actually starting to question and challenge his understanding of God's character. Maybe the problem's with God. Maybe God actually is not fair. Because Job knows his heart, and and he says, if I'm innocent, I should be experiencing blessing, but I'm experiencing suffering. The only solution is God must not actually be fair. Chapter 16, his next roller coaster on this journey. And here we see this cry for justice. O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. He's referencing back to the story of Cain and Abel. When Abel was murdered, God says, the blood of Abel is crying out to me from the ground for justice. And so here's Job saying, you know what? I think I'm gonna die, but my prayer is that my blood would continue to cry out for justice. He says, someday I want justice. Someday can I get the justice that I feel like I deserved. And so here we see this major shift from his friends. His friends thinks justice comes right away. But what is Job saying? I know my witness is in heaven and my evidence is on high. What Job is saying is I am confident one day I will get my justice, but it might not be right now. I might not experience justice now, but there is a day where it is coming. And then we come to what is probably the, one of the highlights of Job's communication in chapter 28. And chapter 28 is different because all up to this point, in every one of Job's speeches, he's addressing his friends. But when it comes to chapter 28, Job's not doing that. This is a prayer directly to God. Job is communicating himself to God. It's like he's, he says, I'm so done with these friends, I'm now talking to the Lord. And this is a real moment of faith for Job in this roller coaster journey. Chapter 28, he says this. Job says, I have been seeking for wisdom. I cannot find it. But his conclusion is this. God understands its way. He's talking about wisdom. God understands wisdom's way and he knows wisdom's place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees under the whole heavens. Here Job in this moment is saying, you know what? I have searched for wisdom. I've searched to understand this and I am not getting it. But I know there is one who is wise. I know there is one who sees the ends of all things. He sees what I can't see. He has a perspective I will never have. And so what is Job communicating here? I'm still gonna seek after him. I'm still seeking the one who has this wisdom. And in the last verse of chapter 28, he comes back to this point. He says, let's remember what God has said. Behold, behold. 
The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. At the end of this chapter, it's, it's Job going back and saying, do you remember, remember chapter one, verse one, where it says Job was an upright man who feared the Lord? Now Job, in the midst of this suffering, he's coming back to that and he says, I know what I'm being called to do in this moment. Right now in the midst of my suffering, I am not gonna understand this, but I am called to still fear the Lord, to seek his wisdom and to depart from evil. This is a great moment of faith where Job comes to this place saying, I don't understand, but I know the one who does and I still am gonna live in pursuit of him. It'd be great if the story kind of ended there and we're like, yes, Job. But that's not how life works. Going through suffering is not this clear journey where we finally get there. Chapter 31, where we end today, it comes down to this. This is Job kind of crying out to the Lord one more time. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Here's my grade. Here's the score I should have received. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. Here's Job one more time crying out saying, God, I have again gone through. I deserved. My grade was innocence. What I deserved was blessing. I want to meet with you and talk about this. This is Job basically saying, as he's done throughout this book, I want to meet with God because I, I, I got to figure out his character. I don't understand him, but I still want to meet with him. And that's an amazing thing about Job that separates him. He continues to want to know the mind of God. So what is Job's conclusion? He concludes, God is not fair because I am innocent and undeserving of suffering. Now, when we think about that, when most people come to this conclusion in life, that I don't think God is fair, what do most people do? They run from God. God's not giving me what I deserve. I'm done with him. I've tried the God thing and that did not work for me. I'm on to something else. But Job didn't do that. Instead of running from God, he continued over and over to run towards God because he says, the problem has to be in my understanding of his character. And so he continued to pursue knowing the character of the Lord. And so at the end of this book, we see God's response. And we're going to get more to this later, but just quickly. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these things to Job that the Lord says to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, this is a bit surprising because Job made some pretty wrong and serious accusations about God in the midst of this book. He doubted God's goodness. He questioned his character. And yet God still could see, I know the heart of my servant, Job. His heart is one of understanding. His heart is one of seeking. His heart is one of wanting to know my character. You see, the friends didn't need God. They didn't need a relationship with God because they had life figured out. But Job said, Lord, I don't understand. I need you. And at the end of the day, is that not what God is after? He's after our dependence upon him and our continual reliance and pursuit of him. And so we come to the end of this thing and we still wrestle with this question. Can God let innocent people suffer and still be good? Can innocent people experience unfairness in this life and God still be good? Do you know the good thing for us is we have the rest of the Bible, Job didn't have that. The rest of Scripture makes this very clear. And I want to close with this one verse. 
First Peter 3 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Do you see the beauty of this? God does allow innocent people to suffer. He showed us that in God the Son coming to earth. If there was ever one who was innocent, it was his son, the perfect lamb of God, who who if God really operated under the retribution principle, Jesus would have come and experienced blessing and abundance. But Jesus came and he experienced wrath and suffering. Why did he do that? Because God allows innocent people to suffer now because in eternity, he's gonna set it all right. You see, without the innocent suffering of Christ, all we were left with was an eternity of hopelessness. Because before the death of Christ, God would have given us exactly what we deserved. And what do every single one of us deserve? We deserve chaos, confusion, brokenness here on this earth, and we deserve an eternity in hell separated from God because of our sin. But does God give us what we deserve? No. And for that we say, thank you, Lord. Because God gave his son what he did not deserve. The just for the unjust. Christ came and he took what he never deserved so that he could offer to us what we could never earn. So is God fair in the grand scheme of eternity? Absolutely. Does that mean we are going to experience it in our day-to-day life? No. There are some parts of suffering we will never understand, and there's questions that we will never get answered. But what do we know? We know that God is not asking us to do something that he himself didn't first do. God is not asking us to innocently suffer here on this earth before he made his son to innocently suffer on our behalf. Suffering in life can feel so overwhelming, and I don't want to make light of that. And so if you're suffering right now, there's not easy answers that solve that, but I want to just give you a few quick things on how how do we face suffering. The first thing is to look back at the cross. In the midst of your suffering, don't forget the innocent one who suffered for you. And today I encourage you to keep pressing on. Keep seeking to know the Lord because it's when we're in the midst of suffering that we get to know the Lord the best. Because the Bible says the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he hears the cries of the afflicted. Our suffering is a time when we can experience and know the character of God in a unique way. And finally, I encourage you to remember that people are watching you suffer. And when people are watching you suffer and they know she didn't deserve that, he doesn't deserve that suffering, do you know what your suffering is doing? It's helping to show people the gospel. That Christ does allow the innocent to suffer. And you have the chance to say, you know what, my suffering is temporary, but there is one who suffered on our behalf so that we could experience blessing for all of eternity. Your suffering is a wonderful opportunity to show people the beauty of God's grace and God's mercy. And so Job teaches us that God owes us nothing. And yet he has offered us everything. 
And even though we may not experience blessing here and now, he is still sovereign, he is still just, and he is still worthy for our submission to him as our king. Because look what he has done for us. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of who you are. In our moments of doubt and confusion, God, help us to not be so overwhelmed by the trial that we forget to pursue you. Help us, God, not to look so much for the blessing that we forget. It's you that we're after. Lord, I pray for those suffering. I pray if there's any who are in that place of Job 3 and just feeling the agony of despair, Father, help them to see the cross today. Help them to see the beauty of what you offered through the innocent suffering of your son. We thank you for the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that gives way for faith and repentance, that gives way to life. Father, if there's one here who does not know you, if they've never come to understand and put their faith in the beauty of the innocent suffering of your son, will you please draw them to yourself today? Help them to see what it is that you are offering to them. Help us to faithfully walk through the suffering of our friends together. God, maybe we recognize we are never alone in the midst of our trials. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for joining us. We hope that you were encouraged by the teaching of God's word. If you have questions or would like more information about our church, you can find us at www.robbinsvillefbc.org or call the office at 828-479-3423. God bless you and have a great day.